Welcome to New Fear Unlocked. I'm your host, Anya, and this week we have such an interesting case which covers the fear of poisoning. I don't know why, but being poisoning is such an irrational fear for me. Like, there's literally no reason for me to have this fear, but it's just kind of one of those that, like, sits at the back of my mind. That being said, there is a good bit to get through, so as always, get comfy, maybe skip the beans, and enjoy. As always, this week's episode does discuss murder, which may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Beth M. Lomer in the early 1970s was the it girl in high school. She was described as statuesque, president of her school's National Honor Society, and a standout athlete on the track and as part of the volleyball and basketball teams. It's no wonder then that she caught the eye of Stephen Robards, one of the, quote, best-looking boys in school, standing at six feet, four inches, with dark curly hair and a, quote, lean, muscular body. The two started dating shortly after meeting and in 1974 decided to take their relationship to the next level and get married. Beth was only about 18 at the time and Stephen had just entered the Navy, but the two felt like soulmates. Two years later, in 1976, Beth and Stephen Robards welcomed a daughter, Dorothy Marie Robards, into the world. Unfortunately, the high school sweetheart's relationship was rocky even before the birth of their daughter. With Stephen in the Navy, they were constantly moving with each new place he was stationed. For any couple, having to uproot and completely move your life can be incredibly difficult, so I can't imagine how hard this had to be on them at 20 years old with a baby. Eventually, the family of three settled in Fort Worth, Texas, but their marriage was beyond repair at this point. Beth, in an interview for a TexasMonthly.com article, Poisoning Daddy, said of their relationship, Stephen's behavior has always been a little erratic, but I was a naive Catholic girl, caught up in this whirlwind teenage romance with this suave guy. But there came a point when I didn't know how to act around him anymore. He became jealous, he had temper tantrums, he couldn't hold on to a job, and then there were times when he would get so tired and feel everything was so bleak and dark that nothing was worthwhile. Ultimately, in 1980, just six years after their wedding, the two divorced when Dorothy, or Marie to those who knew her, was just four years old. Marie moved in with her mother following the separation, only seeing her father about one to two times a month. A year later, Beth remarried to a man named Frank Burroughs, a former Navy petty officer at the base Stephen was stationed at in Florida. Frank was recently divorced himself with one son already, and is described as a strong-willed, protective figure, and by all accounts was excited at the prospect of becoming Marie's stepfather. According to court transcripts, Marie viewed him as a father figure as well, even calling him dad. Based on everything I could find for this case, this little melded family of four worked. Marie was really close with her mother, and seeing her mother happy with Frank made her happy. Until 1992, when things started taking a turn for the worse. Marie was 16, and I know it sounds cliche, but she also was that girl. Like, you either wanted to be her, or you wanted to date her. She was the perfect student, always polite, rarely dated, or drank, or partied. She played clarinet in the high school band, took art and dance classes in her spare time, and to top it all off was absolutely stunning. As her best friend Stacy Hill put it, are you, like, serious? Have you ever gotten a good look at her? Marie is, like, gorgeous. In high school, she was one of the most mature girls I ever met. I thought, wow, 
If I hang around her, she'll keep me motivated, help me act a little more serious. This sort of external persona, however, did not reflect what was going on at home at the time for Marie. The weekend before she turned 16, just before junior year of high school started, she came home to find her stepfather, Frank, with another woman. This took a huge toll on Marie, I think in part due to her relationship with her mother. J. Randall Price, a psychologist who will later evaluate Marie, explains, quote, They were quite affectionate in an overt fashion, hugging one another, finishing each other's sentences. It wasn't anything pathological, anything dark or disturbing. They were like sisters who had grown up together, unquote. It seemed that this closeness made Marie protective over her mother, and Frank's affair was the ultimate betrayal in her eyes. Dr. Price says of this, quote, there was some jealousy or possessiveness about her mother's relationship to Frank. Angry, Marie went to her mother about what she saw, and while Beth was completely devastated, she made the decision to stay with Frank. Beth explained to Marie that she loved him, and quote, he just didn't have his head on right. He felt neglected because of all the time I was spending with my own job, and this was his way of reacting. And honestly, I'm with Marie on this one. The way Beth reacts to this is so alarming to me. I don't know much about the relationship, and there aren't claims of physical abuse by either Beth or Marie, but this blaming it on her job response screams manipulation slash domestic abuse. And to clarify, domestic abuse isn't always violent, but can start as manipulation, which is kind of how this reads to me. Regardless, it's really clear that this isn't a healthy relationship. And I hope that this isn't something that needs to be said, but I'm going to anyway. There is absolutely no excuse for cheating, and you working or making your own money certainly isn't one. And you are never to blame for your spouse cheating on you. You didn't do something wrong. They are 100% to blame. End of my little rant. Let's get back to the story now. So as I said, Marie was infuriated by this. As Frank had said later, quote, Marie had lost respect for me because of what I had done. Marie stopped tolerating him completely. If he asked her to do something, such as cleaning her room, she simply wouldn't. She often talked back to him and completely withdrew from everyone. Eventually, she had enough, telling her mother, quote, I can't stand being in this house. I think you should divorce him, unquote. Again, her mother responded with the aforementioned, I love him and he'll change BS, to which Marie simply said, I have to leave. With this decision, Beth called her parents and helped move Marie into their home in Fort Worth, Texas. This move only lasted five days, though. With all of her savings, which was about $50 at the time or about 110 in today's money, Marie got in a taxi and started the 45-minute journey back to her mom's house in Granbury, Texas. When she arrived back home, horrible Frank forbade her from moving back in. According to him, he set a rule that if either Marie or his son moved out of the home to live with the other parent, they weren't allowed to move back. He claims this is the only way to prevent the kids from just moving between house to house when they didn't get their way. Now, being a child of divorce myself, this is absolutely ridiculous to me. First off, Marie moved out of the house because Frank cheated on his wife, her mother, something I think most kids would have wanted to do in her situation. Secondly, she is freshly 16. I don't care that he is her stepdad and not her biological dad. Marie's home situation is one where her mother is her primary caregiver. And based on the fact that she sees her dad only one to two times a month, I'm speculating that the divorce decree gives Beth full parental rights to Marie. Frank had to have known this when he chose to marry Beth, 
And guess what? That means you have a duty to take care of this kid until she turns 18. If you don't want that, don't have children or don't marry into the family. As you can imagine, though, this went horribly for them. As Beth recalls, quote, it was a terrible scene. All of us outside screaming and crying at one another. Marie was crying for me to take her back, and Frank was shouting at me, quote, you know the rule and you can't break it. The same thing that applied to my son should apply to her. He was making sense, I know, but I felt like he was making me choose between him and her. Again, another huge red flag regarding Frank and his manipulation of Beth. Beth, however, fails Marie deeply and does choose Frank. I'm not trying to blame Beth for what will happen in the future as I recognize she is likely in a manipulative relationship and may have been scared about what would happen financially, psychologically, or physically should she choose Marie over Frank. But we cannot ignore that this is definitely a variable in what happens from here. Beth called Stephen and asked if Marie could move in with him, something she thought would be temporary and, quote, Frank would soon change his mind. Unfortunately, Marie didn't see it the same way. To her, this was her mother abandoning her and Frank getting what he wanted. Dr. Price explained, quote, Marie might have seen the marriage as a way of taking her mother away. By the same token, Frank was probably jealous of the mother-daughter relationship, unquote. Marie explained to him later that she felt Frank was incredibly relieved to finally have her gone. According to her, her, quote, constant presence and her relationship with her mother was hindering him from putting his marriage back together with Beth, unquote. Now, while Marie wasn't exactly excited to move in with her biological dad, presumably because she really didn't have a relationship with him, it was kind of like moving in with a complete stranger for her. Stephen was incredibly excited to have her live with him, finally. Since the divorce in 1980, Stephen had turned his life around. He started taking antidepressants, was in a romantic relationship with a woman named Sandra Hudgens, who was a single mother he met at a Parents Without Partners meeting, now held a steady job with the United States Postal Service, and applied for a two-bedroom apartment in his complex to better accommodate her. Stephanie Elder, Stephen's sister, backs this excitement up, saying, For Stephen, Marie's coming back to him was like icing on the cake. Unfortunately, Marie really struggled at Stephen's. She sent many letters to her mother about how much she hated her new high school, how her father was completely, quote, devoid of most homemaking skills, unquote, never cleaned the apartment, and had her sleeping on a rollaway bed in the dining room. In some of the letters, she explained that while he didn't frighten or hurt her, she was suicidal living with him, which her mother simply wrote off to her being dramatic and responded with, quote, life is too precious to say things like that. Marie was miserable and everyone knew it. Sandra Hudgens, Stephen's girlfriend, said, quote, he did everything he could to make her feel comfortable. But I know that those first few weeks, Marie was constantly on the phone calling her mother. She was pleading to get back home. After a few months, though, things started to get better for Marie. She started succeeding in school again, getting a 98 in French class, a 91 in English, and a 95 in chemistry class, even being described by her chemistry teacher as being in the top 1-2% to of kids in the class. By Christmas, she was more relaxed and seemed happy to be there. As Sandra said, she never talked back to Stephen. She was always cooperative. She even asked me if she could help me wrap Christmas presents. In all honesty, she was what you wanted a teenager to be. Two months later, this would all end in tragedy. On February 18th, Stephen and Marie ordered Mexican food. Upon finishing his meal, Stephen left for his local Church of Christ Wednesday church service, but returned within an hour due to a stomachache. 
Shortly after he got home, he started vomiting, and Marie ran to Sandra's apartment for help. Marie stayed in Sandra's apartment, listening to the radio with Sandra's son while she checked on Stephen. By the time she got there, Stephen's arms and legs were getting really stiff, and Sandra recalls, quote, He said he couldn't swallow well, and I saw saliva coming from his mouth. I went into the other room and called an ambulance. While I was on the phone, I heard Stephen gurgling. His mouth was foaming. It was terrible. His eyes were open, and he was just staring. Paramedics arrived not long after and tried intubating him, but failed to get the tube down his throat as it had already completely closed. Sometime in all of this chaos, Marie came back into the apartment and stood in the doorway. According to Sandra, quote, it was like she was in shock. She didn't tell the paramedics anything. She only stood there, unquote. To protect Marie from seeing her father die, Sandra hugged her and pushed her face into her shoulder. Later that night, Beth and Frank arrived at the hospital to take Marie home. An autopsy was conducted as Stephen was a healthy 38-year-old prior to his death, which deemed his death due to natural causes, likely a heart attack. Stephen Robard's funeral was four days later on February 22, 1993. People in attendance recalled Marie just standing frozen and dazed beside his grave, almost like she was in shock. But no one thought her behavior was strange or abnormal, for a 16-year-old girl who lost her father just four days previously. Not long after this, Beth told Marie that she was still having issues with Frank and secured a job in Florida, where she wanted to move the two of them. Marie simply choked out, You had this plan all along to take me to Florida? By March 1993, the two women were settled in Panama City, Florida, with the hope that this would turn their lives around. But that's not what happened. Marie was incredibly depressed, struggling to get out of bed most days. Beth, worrying she was manic-depressive like Stephen was, sent Marie to a counselor, which seemed to do little help. In June, Frank came knocking on their door trying to win Beth back. This time, he said he would work harder on their marriage, and both Beth and Marie seemed to believe him this time. Now it'll come as literally no shock to any of you, though, that only a few weeks later, Marie found a note from another woman on his pillowcase. This was Marie's last straw, telling her mom, quote, you can put up with him if you want to, but I don't have to. I miss Texas, and I'm going home. Again, no surprises here, but Beth chose Frank over Marie, and Marie moved back in with her paternal grandfather, Jim Robards, in Mansfield, Texas. Following the move, Marie started high school again, here, she returned to being a straight-A student, joined the volleyball team and yearbook staff, where she met her best friend, Stacy Hill. The two girls were inseparable early on. Stacy came from an abused background and could tell Marie had gone through something traumatizing. Quote, I thought I could help her come out of her shell, teach her to have a little more fun in life. I think it's the similarity between the two girls that made Marie feel safe with Stacy. And a year after her father's death, Marie came clean to Stacy about what actually happened that night. The two girls had been studying Hamlet together when Stacy started reading out Claudius' soliloquy in what I think is Act 3. Quote, My fault is past, but oh, what form of prayer can serve my turn? Forgive me my foul murder? That cannot be, since I am still possessed of those effects for which I did the murder. Stacy remembers looking up after finishing the soliloquy, and seeing Marie completely devoid of color and shaking. Before she asked, Do you think people can go through life without a conscience? Stacy, thinking they were just sort of talking about the soliloquy, responded with, 
Well, how about the kind of person who can look somebody in the eye and kill him in cold blood? Marie proceeded to stand up, back into a wall, collapse to the floor, and start weeping. Stacy, concerned, asked her what was happening, and Marie simply said, guess. Being 17, Stacy first asked, Oh my god, are you pregnant? No. You wrecked your grandparents' car. Shake of the head, no. Jokingly, well, um, you didn't kill somebody, did you? To which Marie admitted mixing barium acetate into her father's beans on the night of February 18, 1993, and begged her best friend not to tell anyone her secret. She agreed, but after Marie left that night, Stacy told her mother, who believed Marie had simply made up the story and didn't call the cops. Stacy's mom, Libby Hills, sat with this for a few days, though, before she decided to contact the Poison Control Center, who confirmed barium acetate in a fatal dose could kill someone by closing their throat. If you think at this point she called the police to report what her daughter told her, you'd be wrong. Libby felt a responsibility to, quote, prepare her daughter for the rigors of the real world. And when asked about this later, she explained, I wanted Stacy to know that I trusted her to make her own decision about Marie. I guess I knew that this was the moment in which Stacy would have to grow up. Scared to betray her best friend, an absolute sin in high school, Stacy kept the secret for weeks. Throughout these weeks, her guilt over knowing swelled and began to affect her drastically. She had a, quote, complete mental breakdown, prompting her to speak to her school counselor and some friends who already graduated about what she knew without naming Marie, who all told her the story was likely a lie. She started having nightmares where Marie was chasing her through the woods and she could, quote, hear Marie breathing real slowly, just like it was a horror movie. She tried to convince herself it was just a teenage mistake and Marie just needed counseling rather than a jail sentence. In February 1994, on the anniversary of Stephen's death, Jim Robards took Marie and Stacy to the Macaroni Grill for dinner. Throughout this dinner, Marie refused to listen to any of the toasts Jim made for his son. At one point, Stacy asked if she wanted to put flowers on her dad's grave, to which Marie responded that she didn't even know where his gravesite was that she was over her father's death and didn't want to think about it. A few more weeks passed after this incident before Stacy finally told someone what Marie had confessed to her. Throughout this time, her nightmares progressed to Stephen calling to Stacy from the grave to save him. She had simply had enough and went to the counselor's office asking them to call the police about Stephen's death. In the weeks following her confession to police, Stacy began second-guessing whether she made the right decision. She dropped out of the yearbook class in an effort to avoid seeing Marie daily, started missing school, staying out late, and partying more. In April 1994, Stacy's mental state deteriorated substantially, and she willingly checked herself into an after-school program at a private psychiatric treatment center. Her confusion continued on prom night, where the two girls spent time together for the first time in weeks. Stacy told the reporter with TexasMonthly.com, quote, she was so beautiful that night that I couldn't believe she had ever done anything wrong. I kept thinking, maybe we can all just forget this ever happened. In theory, following Stacy's confession to the police, this case should have progressed rapidly. All the police needed to do was test Stephen's blood, which they already had extra of from the initial autopsy, for barium acetate. Barium acetate is a barium compound made of barium salt and acetic acid. It is commonly used in the textile industry for printing fabrics, in lubricating grease, or in chemistry as a catalyst for organic reactions. 
Barium acetate is incredibly toxic to humans and can lead to rapid GI upset, such as vomiting, abdominal pain, and watery diarrhea. Within one to four hours of ingestion, profound hypokalemia, or low potassium, and generalized muscle weakness develop, which can progress from the limbs to the respiratory muscles. As the hypokalemia continues and becomes severe, the heart starts to be affected and develop fatal ventricular dysrhythmias. Unfortunately, there is no antidote, however prompt medical treatment can save the individual's life. That being said, barium acetate is not commonly used for poisonings and therefore is not routinely checked for in toxicology reports on autopsies. Not only that, but barium acetate is detected via mass spectrometry, which requires a special machine that costs $150,000. As you can probably guess, the Tarrant County Medical Examiner's Office did not own this machine, and it took nearly three months for them to find a lab that can detect barium acetate in a sample, and another five before the results were received. An interesting theory I found on why this actually took so long, which I think is worth bringing up, is that the Fort Worth Homicide Unit was already overworked at this time, and therefore felt they had more important things to do than investigate this little story from a teenage girl. Additionally, Marie is a white girl in 1990s Texas. Now these are all speculations and have obviously not been substantiated, but I do think it's worth considering. While police waited for these results to come back, the police went to the high school chemistry lab Marie told Stacy she got the chemical from and found the bottle of barium acetate. Additionally, they, quote, found a safety manual with pages of the chemicals listing safety precautions, toxicity amounts, and what to do in case of accidental poisoning, which had a missing barium acetate page. Eight months after Stacy went to the police, the toxicology report came back revealing Stephen had one and a half times the lethal amount of barium acetate in his blood. Armed with this evidence, police arrested Marie in October 1994 for the first-degree murder of her father, Stephen Robarts. Her arrest came with various public opinions on the kind of person Marie was. Mitch Poe, the Tarrant County co-prosecutor on her case, called her, quote, society's worst nightmare, a girl who kills her dad. Fred Rabelai Jr., the other co-prosecutor, labeled her a, quote, remorseless predator. Stephen Robard's father, Jim, had a different opinion of his granddaughter. Quote, I know the girl doesn't have a criminal mind. For reasons only she will know, she committed this one-time act but I know that's all it was, a one-time act. I have to say, I don't understand what good a penitentiary sentence will do for a girl like Marie. Once in the police interrogation room, Marie confessed to everything immediately, prompting police to just need to determine the motive. Marie denied any abuse at the hands of her father and that he did anything he shouldn't have to her. Her motive was simple, quote, because it was the only way I could go back home, to her mother, in her typed confession, she stated, quote, I just wanted to be with my mom so bad that I would do anything to be with her. In regards to this statement, Dr. Price explains, quote, For whatever reason, Marie did feel permanently trapped. She told me that prior to the barium incident, she had been thinking that if she could burn down Stephen's apartment when he wasn't there, she would be able to be reunited with her mother. According to Marie and the defense, she was a teenage girl desperate to get back to her mother who never intended to kill her father. Rather make him sick enough, she'd be forced to move in with her mother and stepfather. The prosecution, however, didn't buy this one bit. Mitch Poe told the media, quote, In my opinion, she gave him a death sentence, and I fully believe she intended to do what she did. I think we're going to prove a lot more intent than a lot of people believe. We're going for all of it. 
Using some of the money she received from her father's life insurance, Marie got out on bond while awaiting trial. She moved back to Granbury, Texas with her mother and Frank and started working while awaiting her trial. In the meantime, Beth used the remainder of Marie's life insurance payout to hire two veteran defense attorneys, Bill Magnuson and Ward Casey. It was with their guidance Marie did her only interview regarding this with the Associated Press. In this interview, she explained, quote, I never thought anything through. I didn't realize what I was doing. I knew I had done something very, very wrong, but I did not think of myself as a criminal. She goes on to say, quote, I took this chemical because I knew it would make him sick. The teacher said it was harmful. As a sort of explanation for how she coped with what she did, she said, quote, I think for a long time I did a good job of pretending it didn't happen. For a long time I tried not to think about it. I feel so guilty about what happened. I know I hurt a lot of people. With this interview, it became clear Marie's defense attorneys planned to convince the jury that Marie didn't know it would kill her father if she gave him the barium acetate. The idea was that if they thought she didn't intend to kill him, she may get off with just manslaughter, which carries a much lighter sentence. I think this is a good time to pause and talk about parricide, or the killing of one's parent. Parricide is incredibly rare, with most reports showing only about 9-29 to 29 cases per year, depending on the country you live in. Most cases of parricide are committed by adults, however 20% of perpetrators are under the age of 18. Unlike other forms of crime, parasite is usually unplanned, occurring after an argument or altercation. Sometimes there are indications of trouble prior to the killing, like worsening of psychiatric symptoms and increases in perpetrator hostility toward family members. According to Dr. Kathleen M. Hyde, who specializes in juvenile violence and adolescent parasite offenders, adolescents are more likely to kill a parent when their home situation is problematic. In instances of patricide, Researcher George B. Palermo says, quote, negative feelings toward the paternal figure may be exaggerated by the presence of what is seen as an intruding stepfather. Dr. Hyde also explains that these adolescent perpetrators are still developing and therefore have less understanding of their emotions than an adult, and thus cannot deal with the difficult home situations in the way we would expect from an adult. Additionally, kids can't weigh their decisions and the impact of them like an adult can. Dr. Hyde, in her book, Why Kids Kill Parents, Child Abuse, and Adolescent Homicide, published in 1992, posits three types of parasite offenders, the severely abused, the severely mentally ill, and the dangerously antisocial. Each of these three focus on the offender being heavily abused by their parent. However, new research shows that 72% of children who killed a parent did not allege or bring up any instance of abuse by the parent during the criminal investigation or prosecutorial proceedings, negating these dated views that only an abused child will kill their parent. A new theory circulating in research about parasite is the nascent theory. This is still being developed and validated, but at the moment shows five personality types of adolescents which kill their parents. The first is erratic. These are usually, quote, angry and violent children. Family, friends, or relatives may describe as a ticking time bomb. These individuals are often involved in drug use and seldom being abused by a parent. However, they are more likely to engage in parental abuse. A murder by an erratic adolescent is usually spontaneous. The next is the alpha brat, which are attention-hogging children who are often charming con artists and very much in charge at home. If an accomplice is involved, the person was carefully groomed for the job of hitman. These alpha brat children are rarely abused by their parents, rather are indulged. 
These kids do allege abuse more than other personality types and usually plan their murders meticulously. The third personality type is the anarchist. These are broody kids who believe they are superior to all those around them. These kids often believe themselves to be more clever than everyone else, but rarely are. Usually they have aspirations to become a mass murderer, but are not usually successful in this. Like the erratic child, they are usually involved in drug use. As for abuse, quote, approximately one-third of them will allege abuse that will never be substantiated, yet more of them engage in parental abuse. These murders are either planned or spontaneous, and usually due to their parent being an obstacle to be eliminated. The fourth personality is the mission-oriented child. These kids are more likely to allege abuse, but often this is never substantiated. Like the alpha brat, their murders are often planned, and unlike the anarchist, their personality type is usually successful in killing other people, and most will attempt to. The last personality type, and the one I feel Marie probably fits best into, is the tightly wound adolescent. As the researchers explain, quote, these are kids who have learned to tightly control themselves, often in efforts to keep themselves safe. This does not imply they are all abused children. Sometimes one stays safe by concealing dark secrets. These children are much more likely to experience abuse and are significantly less likely to allege abuse that will remain unsubstantiated. Not one of the children from this cluster was known to have menaced a parent prior to the murder, unquote. Ultimately, the nascent theory does agree that abuse is a variable in youthful parasite, but is not and should not be considered a primary motivator for murder anymore. Now let's get back to the trial. Marie's trial started on May 9, 1996, and the courtroom was packed throughout the entire trial. Marie was 19 at the time of the trial and was described as putting her right hand on her cheek and sobbing silently throughout almost all of the trial. During breaks in it, Beth would come in and just hug Marie the whole break, while Frank stayed outside not speaking to anyone. As for the Robards, they sat stone-faced on the right side of the courtroom. The defense started with one of her attorneys, Ward Casey, addressing the jury, stating, quote, She only wanted to make her daddy sick overnight. She only wanted to go home to mama. As I previously mentioned, the prosecution felt otherwise. They explained to the jury that, quote, Marie was an excellent chemistry student. She knew exactly how lethal barium acetate was, unquote, and never told the paramedics what she'd given him, even as it became evident Stephen was dying. Additionally, they called Stacy High to the stand, who testified that, quote, Marie told her during one of the conversations that she knew the barium acetate would be fatal. In a strange turn, the defense did not call the psychologist Dr. Randall Price to testify as originally planned. As he explained in the TexasMonthly.com article, the plan was for him to testify that, quote, Marie was not deranged, but was so consumed with remorse over Stephen's death that she was experiencing a version of PTSD unable to express her emotions, and that, quote, he believed Marie never wanted her father to die, unquote. Whether her defense attorneys felt this wouldn't help their case or confident they would win without it, this decision allowed the prosecution to put forth a story that Marie savagely poisoned her father and never tried to save him. It took the jury only one hour to deliberate and return with a verdict of guilty of first-degree murder. This verdict gave the defense no choice but to call Marie to the stand in her sentencing hearing. She told the jury she had never been convicted of a crime and that she loved her dad very much. When asked if she was sorry she killed her dad, she turned toward the Robards and through tears said, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. 
The defense also called Jim Robards to the stand, who stated that while he was obviously upset over the death of his son, Marie should be forgiven and offered a probationary sentence. To finish the sentencing hearing, the prosecution asked for a life sentence for Marie since she, quote, gave her father a death sentence, while her defense asked for the probation as she, quote, would have to live with the guilt of her father's death for the rest of her life, unquote. Ultimately, she was sentenced to 28 years in prison, of which seven had to be served in a state prison before she was eligible for parole. I struggled with the sentencing a bit as Marie was only 16 when she committed the murder. This may be a slightly unpopular opinion, but I am of the mindset that a 16-year-old should not be tried as an adult, even if they are an adult when the trial comes around. The fact that a life sentence was even on the table for Marie is absolutely insane to me. I think about who I was at 16, and while I obviously didn't do anything criminal, I did stupid stuff without even thinking about it. At 16, you don't recognize the consequences of your actions entirely. I personally don't feel that Marie actually knew the gravity of her actions with the barium acetate, regardless of how harmful her professor made it seem. I just don't feel that the thought this could kill him would actually cross a 16-year-old's mind, especially one with no prior criminal history or even a history of malicious acts on anyone. Following Marie's conviction, she was put on suicide watch in the county jail. Dr. Price visited her a week after the verdict and says of that meeting, quote, Marie asked me if she could get her college degree while she was in prison. She told me she was anxious to start some kind of schooling to improve herself, to accept her punishment and move on. She was wearing these paper clothes which the jailers give prisoners on a suicide watch and she was shivering in her cold jail cell. But she told me she had no right to complain about her own problems because she had already caused so much suffering. She called her mother every night from jail, was a model inmate, and after seven years was released on parole. She has since married and lives in anonymity. The Robards eventually told the press, quote, We didn't suspect a thing. The only thing we thought was a little strange was that she didn't want to go to Stephen's grave. She told us she couldn't emotionally handle it, unquote. Her mother, Beth, still feels a lot of blame for what happened to Stephen, as she didn't tell her daughter they were going to move to Florida together earlier. Additionally, she says in the TexasMonthly.com article, quote, What's so tragic is that total strangers could meet Marie and see something special in her. She felt trapped, and I let her feel that way. I didn't give her any hope, unquote. And that's our case. I think this case really brings up an interesting conversation about culpability of adolescence in crime. Like I said earlier, I don't feel that Marie should have ever been considered for a life sentence. Marie is absolutely guilty for killing her father, but whether she was actually aware that her actions would do that, I'm not entirely sure. I believe manslaughter would fit this crime better personally. Additionally, I do think it raises a question of whether prison is actually the best way forward for a young offender with no criminal record. I think living in countries other than the U.S., I've learned that a rehabilitative method might be better for these young offenders with no malicious or criminal history. It's an interesting conversation to have, and I think one that needs to be talked about more. I also think research into these areas is maybe lacking a tad, and we may not know what the best method of quote-unquote punishment is in a case like this until research progresses in this specific field. Honestly, I don't know what the best answer is for this, but I'm interested in hearing what you all have to think about it. I've put a question and poll here on Spotify to hear your thoughts. Additionally, reach out to me at newfearpod on Instagram to continue this conversation. If you enjoyed today's episode, please do review or share with your friends as this really does help get my podcast out there.
Have a great rest of your week, and I can't wait for next week's case. <laughs>